filling up that which is lacking in Christians. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on, on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray. God, again, just thank you for all that you've given us, for what you've written and recorded and preserved for us, Lord, that we might know you and worship you in spirit and in truth. And with these profound truths, Lord, that you've given us here, I pray that our hearts would believe and that we would accept, Lord, by faith what you've said and that we would walk in it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, again, it's... Um, Great being in this book of Colossians. Hesitant not to touch this thing. Since Brian broke it, but anyway, I'll leave it alone. Um, wonderful book where Paul is, is um, wanting to bring these people that he's never met to that place of just really understanding all that they have in Christ. And so he's been focusing in this chapter here, this first chapter to his letter, on the preeminence of Jesus Christ or the sufficiency of and, and sovereignty and supremacy of Christ and that there's everything that we would ever need for living the Christian life has been provided for us in Christ. And, um, and so he wants to guard them, as we're going to see in chapter 2, from being led astray into other things because there's always people in our lives that are saying there's something more that we need other than Jesus and he was just wants to guard them from that. And so he's laid out in this chapter a prayer earlier, and now and then, he, then he talked about the preeminence of Christ. And now in this last paragraph here, he's talking about the presence of Christ within the believer. And it is one of the most um, probably neglected doctrines in all of God's Word. Remember Dwight Pentecost telling us that in a class I had with him in seminary years ago, and he said that in his estimation, the most neglected doctrine of the Christian faith was the believer's identity with Jesus Christ. Christ indwells the Christian. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, It's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I will send a helper to you, another, and he will be with you and he will be in you. And then a little later in the same chapter, he says, not only will the Spirit come in and make his abode with you, but he says, I and my Father will also make our abode with you. So we are truly indwelt by God. Amazing thing to think about. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all that God is comes to inhabit the Christian. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays there, he says, Father, make them one with us, even as I am one with you that they would be in us as I am in you. And so that's what Paul's picking up on here. And he's going, what could be more significant than that? That the God who created this universe, who sustains it, who holds it together, 
who is our Redeemer and the one who has reconciled us to himself, the one who is the firstborn from all of creation, the firstborn from the dead, he lives in you and I. And so that's what this paragraph is about. And it changes everything for Paul, as it should. If Christ is living in us, our entire perspective on life should change. And I've looked at this passage for a long time and, and for many years, and it just occurred to me in a, in a new way just how it is, one, that's one of the most significant consequences of realizing that Christ is in us is the perspective on everything about life changes. And we're going to see that as we step through this, this paragraph. So if Paul prays earlier in the paragraph, he establishes the preeminence of Christ and then now the presence and power of Christ, and then the perspective on life and how it changes. So he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now we know that the, that the core of this whole teaching in this, in this paragraph is going to be at the end of verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's what Paul's building off of. Christ is in us, and he is the hope of glory. But one of the consequences of that is that everything changes in how we look at life. Number one, we can rejoice in sufferings. How many people rejoice in their sufferings? I mean, truly, even as Christians, most of us are not rejoicing in our sufferings. But Paul says, I can rejoice in my sufferings. And it's because the preeminent, all-powerful God lives in me, It changes how I see everything, even how I view suffering, and if I rejoice in my sufferings. So that's the first thing. I can look at them and I can rejoice, number one, because I know they are for your sake. It's not, my sufferings are not all about me. Now, God uses my sufferings to sanctify me, to bring me into conformity to Christ. Sufferings may even be because God is disciplining me if I've gone astray. But there's more to sufferings than that. And how can I be of any use to the body of Christ if I don't go through some hard times? And that's what Paul is going to here. He says it's, it's, the picture is bigger than us. Jesus is the totality of the picture. And, even, and sufferings can either have the, impact, have the effect of turning us inward and we become smaller and smaller in our perspective because we think, I hurt so bad, and all we can think about is our hurt. I got a broken ankle right now. Sometimes all I can think about is the hurt. And it's not hurting at this moment, so don't worry. But, you, but we know how that is. When we're in pain, all we can think about is the pain. It is supernatural to be in pain and to be able to think about something other than your own pain. And Paul, in his suffering, is saying, I know this is more than just about me. This is for you. That's supernatural. Something has transpired in this man where it's more than just a theological, theological, there you go, doctrine that Christ is the exalted one, the preeminent one, but something has transpired in this man that he even sees sufferings from a perspective that includes other people and it's not just about himself. And that something has to come back to the fact that Christ is in him. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
What in the world is that about? Now, first of all, the word afflictions here is not the word that is used for the sufferings of Christ on the cross. So this has nothing to do with the atonement. So Paul is not saying what Jesus did on the, on the atonement, on the cross, is not finished. And I am finishing through my suffering what Jesus started on the cross. That would be heresy. Okay? He would be making himself out to be co-equal with, with Jesus and a co-redeemer with us. There is no co-redeemer. Jesus is the only redeemer. And what he did on the cross was finished and complete, and there's nothing that can be added to it. But Paul does use a different word, afflictions, because he's going through some hard times. He's being afflicted. And because he understands Christ is in the believer, when the believer suffers, when the believer is afflicted, to use Paul's word, Christ is afflicted. See, that changes our perspective. And so this is what Paul said to, to I'm sorry, what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, remember? When Jesus appeared to him, bright shining light, knocked him off his donkey, and then the words of Jesus from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. Because that's what Paul was doing. Remember, he was persecuting the church. But Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus is in his people. And when you persecute Jesus' people, you're persecuting Jesus. So this oneness again. And so, Jesus, and so Paul's going, this is bigger than me. Yes, I'm suffering and I can rejoice in it because it's not just about me. And so he had a perspective that cut through the suffering that was supernatural. But he also understood that when I'm afflicted, Jesus is afflicted. And when I have a hard time, this is also something that Jesus is experiencing as well. And so he says, he says, I am in my flesh, I do my part, my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So he's going, I know the atonement's complete, Paul never questioned that, but for some reason, and he doesn't necessarily know what it is, none of us always necessarily know what it is, he says, for some reason, Jesus is wanting to continue to suffer. Has nothing to do with the atonement. He's just still presenting himself in the world today as the suffering Savior. He's still doing that. And he says, and he's doing that through his people. So it's not just me that's being afflicted. Christ is being afflicted. Changes your perspective. To understand your identity with Jesus Christ. Christ is in me. And what is happening to me is happening to Jesus. So we don't go through this alone. And it's not like Jesus has forgotten us. Sometimes we think that. Why, am I, why is this all happening to me? Has God just forgotten me? Has he put me in the closet and shut the door? Is this a time out for me or something? And it's not any of that. He has not forgotten us. He is one with us. And what happens to us happens to him. We all love when we have a pity party to have other people join us in the pity party. It's the one party where you can never have too many people, right? Come join me for my party. Cost you nothing. And it, and it makes me feel better about myself that so many people are miserable with me. Well, Jesus joins in, not in the pity party, but what we go through, Jesus is going through. I don't fully understand that. Nobody does. But Paul says, that's the truth of it. 
we do not suffer alone. This is not just about us. But what's happening to us, us is happening to Jesus as well. Changes the perspective about the church. See, he, you see the order, word order there. He says, I am filling up in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. See, most of us, I think if I'd written this, I said, I do my share to, to fill up my share on behalf of his church, which is the body. But he doesn't say it that way. He changes it because he's seeing that it's before it's even the church, it is the body of Jesus Christ. It's his body. This assembly is his body. It's not just a bunch of people meeting at 1045 on Sunday morning in Bernie. This is more than that. This is the body of Christ gathered. That's pretty significant. And Paul can say that and see that because Christ is in him. And if Christ is in him individually, he is in us corporately, and this is his body. And that's pretty significant. Now, when we walk through the doors on Sunday morning and see each other and greet each other, man, this this ought to be the controlling thought, is that this is the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul has that perspective because of his understanding of what it means to have Christ living in us. So then he says, of this church, I was made a minister. And so now he sees, he's talked about suffering, rejoicing, and how, how it changes your perspective on everything, the afflictions, the church, his body. And now he talks about himself and the different roles that he has. And again, I take it, each of these roles is because Christ is in him. Now, well, there's one sense where we can look at this and say, well, it, you know, none of us are going to be apostles like Paul. I understand. But the words he's going to use, minister, steward, preacher, laborer, All four of those things are true of every Christian because Christ is in us. Of this church, I was made a minister. We don't come to church just to be ministered to. But that should happen because the body of Christ, all of us are ministers of Jesus Christ. Again, it changes our perspective because Christ is in us We are not just people who who are needy and need to receive, but we have something to give, someone to give. And every one of us, because Christ is in us, has now the capacity to contribute, to minister to the lives of other people. I don't care what your hangups are. I don't care how dysfunctional you were raised. If Christ is in you, you have something to offer. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. And you have a ministry. Again, everything changes. When we begin to see the significance that the preeminent God and all that He is has come to indwell us. Life isn't just about me anymore. See, that's what it was when I was was outside of Christ. Everything was about me. But in Christ, everything has changed. And now... As messed up as I may be, as crippled and bankrupt as I may feel in my soul, the truth is, the one who created this world and who is life itself lives in me, and he can minister through me. I can do nothing apart from him, but he is more than adequate to fill my soul to overflowing to minister to other people. 
And that it doesn't life does not always have to be about what I need. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. It is a stewardship that God has bestowed, that God has bestowed on me. And again, I don't think this is unique to Paul. For your benefit, it's not just about me, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And he's going to get real particular about what that preaching of the word of God is. That is, now he's explaining it, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So mystery, we think Agatha Christie. Ooh, we all like mysteries, you know? Who done it? Well, that's not what mystery means in the New Testament. It simply means that he's about to tell us something that was revealed in the New Testament that was never even hinted at in the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament it's revelation that is being progressively made clear and clear as you go through, but not with a mystery. And there are a few times that mystery is used in the New Testament. Um, Arnold Frutenbaum listed four, but I think it's actually five. Not that I would presume to correct somebody like him, because he was pretty smart. But um, one is the mystery, which the Old Testament said nothing about. Jews and Gentiles being united into one body. The Old Testament, to be sure, often talked about Gentiles getting saved. That's not new. But the Old Testament never talked about Jew and Gentile becoming one, united in one body. Another mystery is the church as the bride of Christ. The Old Testament never mentioned this. It is a New Testament revelation, so in that sense, it is a mystery. The church is the bride of Christ. Another is the rapture. Old Testament never talked about the rapture, but the New Testament speaks often about the rapture of the church being snatched up to meet him in the air when he appears. 1 Timothy talks about the mystery of godliness, and I think that mystery of godliness is in keeping with what Paul is talking about here in Colossians, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is a teaching that was not revealed in the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ is going to actually come and re-indwell the believer, and that his presence, the presence of God in the Christian, would be the hope, the dynamic for glory itself. And what do I mean by that? Remember back earlier in the chapter, Paul says, I pray that you might walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Well, when you're unworthy, how do you walk in a manner worthy? When Jesus is the preeminent God, who alone is worthy of all honor and glory and might and power and praise, how can we walk worthy of him? Well, you can't, unless he's in you. And he can walk in, the, can live this life, walk the walk, talk the talk in you and I. It's him to where we can live in a way that actually glorifies Jesus Christ. The hope of glory, the hope of not only being conformed to him, but the hope of living a life that expresses him, glorifies him, is can only be if Christ is in me, Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
And if Christ is not in us, there is no hope of glorifying God. There is no hope of being anything different than what we were before we were saved. But Christ has come to indwell us, and now there is hope, not just of going to heaven one day, but there is the hope of living a life that is actually true to him because he is in us to live that life. That is good news. When we think of good news, and this is going to sometimes sounds a bit heretical, so I have to speak slowly and enunciate my words. Okay? There is only one way to be saved, right? There has always only been one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith. So the way to be saved is not new news. Okay? The gospel of how to be saved runs throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is always by grace through faith, not two messages of salvation, okay? But gospel literally means good news, right? Well, there's lots of good news in the Bible. There's only one message of salvation, but there are many aspects of good news. So you could say there's lots of good news, Lots of good news stories, okay? But there's only one way to be saved. Well, there is good news. Salvation is by grace through faith. But that is not the only good news. And that's what these mysteries are about in part. There is also the good news or the gospel that Jesus Christ is going to come again and establish his kingdom on earth. That is good news, okay? And that's what Jesus was emphasizing in Matthew to the Jews, the gospel of the coming kingdom. And Paul picks up on this in Romans, and he goes, if the Jews rejecting Jesus resulted in in riches to the world, how much more will their acceptance be? Well, you go, if Jews rejecting Jesus resulted in Gentiles coming to faith in Christ... How can it get any better than that? And Paul says, good question. The only thing better than being saved is being saved on this planet and Jesus is here and he's made everything right. Now that would be glory, right? And that is good news. So in a sense, it's a second gospel, not a second way to be saved. There's only one way to be saved. But there's the gospel Salvation is by grace through faith. And there is the gospel, the good news, Jesus is going to rule on this planet one day. And we're going to be here with him. And he's going to make everything right. Praise God. Good news. Well, there's also the good news, Jews and Gentiles are not at war with each other. We've been made one in the body of Christ. Jesus is the end of all strife and conflict. There is also the good news, everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus has become the very body of Jesus Christ. We will never be separated from him. There is the good news that Jesus could come anytime and rapture us to be with himself. That's exciting. Good news. And there is the good news. Jesus Christ indwells Every single believer. Christ is in you. You think all the good news we have, 
And we spend so much time thinking about the bad stuff. We are people who have good news. And much of this was not even revealed in the Old Testament. It's just been revealed for our time. New Testament times. It's tremendous. So this mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's good news. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Man. Man, and I, I you know, if, if we just sat down and, and contemplated anything, it ought to be the preeminence of Jesus Christ and this awesome God dwells in us if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I brought some envelopes with you. I, you know, I don't do a lot of visual aids and illustrations and stuff, but... I just tell stories that I regret and you regret. But anyway, today's going to be a little different. I got some visual aids here. So I got a little card here. I wrote Jesus on the card. So I'm holding Jesus, okay? Now, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So this envelope is me or you, okay? And the Bible says repeatedly that when you place your faith in Christ, Jesus is in you. Christ is in you. Now, Watchman Nee, in his book, my most, um, his book, um, The Normal Christian Life, he, he uses the illustration of just putting it in his Bible, and he asks his, his students, okay, Christ is in you, just like that piece of paper is in my Bible. Now, if I put this Bible in an envelope and ship it across the world, does the piece of paper that I put in the Bible go with the Bible? Yes. So everywhere you go, Jesus goes, because Christ is in you. You can never be apart from his presence. We spend so much time praying for the presence of Jesus. But if Jesus is in you, you have the presence of God. The presence of God is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is a fact. God dwells in us. It's incredible. So Jesus is in me. Well, I have another envelope, Jesus. So Jesus is in me, but the Bible says, I am in Jesus. Isn't this amazing? And not only is Jesus in me, and I am in Jesus, but Jesus is in God the Father. Now, I'm stealing this from Tony Evans, because he wrote about this in one of his books. So now, does that seem like a secure place to be? Christ is in me, I am in Christ, and Jesus is in the Father. That is a pretty secure place to be. And man, that is the core of our identity. Wouldn't you agree? What could be more significant than that? That the living God lives in me, and I am in Him, and Jesus is in the Father. There is no better place to be. And I don't know what else we talk about. I mean, really, this is the most significant thing about any one of us. 
We can talk about so many other things, our education, whatever, our life experiences. And, you know, it, 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 you know, I've said before, you know, all men are prone to ask each other, what do you do for a living? That is so far down the list of what is significant about our lives. Nothing could be more significant than the living God lives in you and me. Ought to be the first thing we talk about with people. Christ is in us, and he is the hope of glory. Now, I'm not nearly as articulate and eloquent as I would like to be in talking about these things, so I'm just going to steal some stuff from some other people. Okay? Listen, this is just some wonderful things. He says, Ian Thomas, he says, there are two kinds of people. There are those who sincerely try to live a life they do not have. That's a non-believer, a person who is not a Christian. There are those who sincerely try to live a life they do not have, substituting religion for God, Christianity for Christ, and their own noble endeavors for the energy, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. They are lamps without oil, cars without gas, and pens without ink, baffled at their own impotence in the absence of all that alone can make man functional. For man was so engineered by God that the presence of the Creator within the creature is indispensable to His humanity. Christ gave Himself for us to give Himself to us. His presence puts God back into the man. He came that we might have life, God's life. So the one kind of person is those who try to live a life they do not have. Then there are those who have a life they never live. And that is the world of Christians. We have God in us. We have the very life of God indwelling us. And we can be people who are not living the life that we have. They have come to Christ and they have thanked Him only for what He did. But they do not live in the power of who He is. Between the Jesus who was and the Jesus who will be, they live in a spiritual vacuum trying with little zeal, with no little zeal to live for Christ a life that only He can live in and through them, perpetually begging for what in Him they already have. See, if Jesus is everything, the all in all, there's nothing I need that I haven't already received when I receive Christ. And so why do I go through life begging for what's already mine? We do not live the life that we've been given. He says, godliness is a mystery. God did not create you to have just an ape-like capacity to imitate God. There would be no mystery in that. Nor would this lift you morally much above the status of a monkey or a parrot. In direct contrast to this, godliness or God-likeness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity in man. Not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but the consequence of God's capacity to reproduce Himself in you. This is the nature of the mystery. The moment you come to realize that only God can make a man godly, 
you are left with no option but to find God and to know God and to let God be God in and through you, whoever he may be, and this will leave you with no margin for picking and choosing, for there is only one God, and he is absolute, and he made you expressly for himself. I can hear Major preaching that. It's good stuff. Wonderful little book. If you've never read this, The Indwelling Life of Christ by Major Ian Thomas. is the last thing he wrote before he passed away. And again, it's not, you know, I'm not part of a cult. I hope you understand that. There are dozens and dozens of authors who say the same thing, who just say it's all about Jesus, and it's all about Christ living in us. But I just don't know anybody who said it more clearly, more eloquently than Ian Thomas. So that's why I recommend it. There's many, many other authors that I could recommend. Listen to what he says here. God did not create animals with the capacity to be inhabited by their creator as man was. Animals can't be inhabited by God. So how do they function? How does an animal know what to do? By instinct. So he says, instead, God built into animals a unique and wonderful mechanism called instinct. This is the indispensable means by which he protects them and governs their behavior. Can you imagine an animal without instinct? How would it live in this world? It couldn't. It just couldn't. I mean, if if a goose didn't know to fly south in the winter, they would die. If bees didn't know to go to flowers and and collect honey, they would die. I mean, everything we see in the world around us when it comes to insects and animals and fish, everything that they do is because of instinct. It is indispensable to their survival. Indispensable in them functioning in the way that they were created to function. And Major's point is, the presence of God is just as indispensable to us as instinct is to an animal. God never made us to function apart from his indwelling presence. So when God comes to live in the man, man is able to function for the first time as God has intended that person to function. It's amazing. Basic, simple truths. Instinct is indispensable to animals in the same way that the Holy Spirit is indispensable to us in our humanity. Human beings are uniquely made with the capacity to be governed by God himself dwelling within the human spirit in intimate identity with the human soul so that God within the human spirit gains access to the human soul. There he plays that role in man's soul which instincts plays in the animals, teaching the mind, controlling the emotions, and directing the will. In this way, according to his intended design and purpose, he governs our behavior so that he, in us, is the origin of his own image, source of his own activity, dynamic of his own demands, and cause of his own effect. God has created us to be functional only by virtue of his presence, exercising his divine sovereignty within our humanity so that out of our love for him, we live in utter dependence upon him. Moreover, the only evidence of any of us can give us such dependence on him is our unquestioning obedience to him. That is the threefold moral relationship. Love for him, dependence upon him, obedience to him that allows God to be God in action within within a human being. None of us are essential to God. Amen. But he is essentially indispensable to each of us. God so engineered you and me that his presence is indispensable to our humanity, teaching our minds, controlling our emotions, directing our wills, and governing our behavior. 
it would be hard to overemphasize the significance of Christ indwelling presence. It is what makes us function as the human beings God has created us to be. And that's why in these last two verses of the paragraph, and we proclaim him, just him. We proclaim him. That's not complicated, is it? We preach Christ. Paul said to the letter to the Corinthians, we determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is really nothing else to talk about. We proclaim him. We start talking about other things, we are diminishing Jesus. Even when we talk, make the focus of church the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Because the focus of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. And if we start elevating even the Holy Spirit, we are diminishing Jesus. And I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is less than Jesus. He's not. They are equal, co-equal, share the same essence as God. But the Holy Spirit lives to exalt Jesus Christ. And we grieve the Spirit when we exalt the Spirit. We teach anything other, preach anything other than Christ. And we are diminishing Jesus. And we're leading people astray. You all know. I know. You know. The one thing I most need when I'm discouraged, when I'm despairing, when I'm depressed, is I need to come back to Jesus. Right? And the biggest ministry that anybody can have in my life during that time is just to point me back to Jesus. It's for Christ that we have been made. And there is simply no message other than Him. We just finished up another year of Bible school Thursday evening. And it was just wonderful to hear testimonies and what the Lord's been doing in the lives of the students. And, and I want to thank this body for supporting and praying um, for that. Because there's nothing the Lord does, I'm convinced of it, apart from prayer. But one of the guys came to me afterwards, and, and um, actually it was the next day, and, he, and, um, and I, he couldn't have said anything that would have pleased me more. And he said, Charlie, I know you've said that this ministry should be only about Jesus. Well, I want to tell you, that's been my experience in being here. It's just been Jesus. Praise God. Because when it's just Jesus, and we believe him to be who he is, I mean, really, you feel like a spectator. And I say that to people all the time. We can take no credit for what God is doing. Because it's his work, his activity. Does he use us? Yes, but it's his work, his activity. God is the one who brings about change and growth and conformity to Jesus. We're participants but we're not the agents. We're not the cause. We proclaim him. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Real quick, if you just look over at the next chapter, it says um, in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. But here now in chapter one, he says, verse 28, 
we, we want to present every man complete. So in chapter 2, it's a done thing. In chapter 1, it's not done yet. Chapter 2 is talking about positionally. And it's what I've been saying. When Christ comes to live in us, you have everything you will ever need. But that doesn't mean, though you are positionally complete, it doesn't mean that we are as mature or as like Christ as we can be, should be. And so there is a progressive aspect of our relationship with him. We are saved, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. That'll never change, but we can grow. And Paul's saying, that's what I want. Well, guess what? People don't grow by having classes on how to grow. People don't grow by having 12 steps or 5 steps or 20 steps or whatever. People don't grow by just memorizing Scripture and coming to church on Sunday morning. People grow because Christ is central in their lives. We proclaim Him that we might present every man complete. If you want people to grow, don't add to Jesus. This is the thing. It's just so simple. I mean, it's like, can you really feed oatmeal to people every day and have them grow strong, healthy bodies and they'd be Olympians? Spiritually, yes. Because all you ever need is like, this is some kind of superfood that we get from the moment we're saved and God never changes the diet. It's Jesus as our food when we get saved and it's Jesus as our food before we enter glory. And it's one constant meal. Now, if that was steak and iced tea, I'd be okay with it. But it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And, then they go, and, it, and we go, I mean, it's like manna in the wilderness. Isn't it the same thing? That manna in the wilderness was all they needed. And so all those millions of people that were born in the wilderness, that's all they ate for 40 years. When they were babies and didn't have any teeth, manna. When they're grown men and they need to go out and fight wars, manna. It was enough. They didn't need anything more than the manna that God supplied. And Jesus is our manna. He says that. I am the bread which comes down out of heaven. And there is nothing more. So when we preach Jesus, proclaim Jesus, admonish people toward Jesus, teach people about Jesus and their identity and oneness with Him, they will grow. It's as simple as that. You don't need all these programs. Christ preached. Christ proclaimed. Christ embraced. And we will be made complete. For this purpose, for the proclaiming of Jesus Christ, for the proclaiming and preaching of the word of God, which is concerning Christ in us, I labor and strive. So it's not a passive life. I labor and I strive to stay true to Jesus Christ and to preach him so that others would be brought into conformity to him and maturity to him. I labor and strive. But I am striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Really? I don't like that phrase a whole lot. I do on one hand. God's power is mightily working within me. Well, I don't always feel that. But it doesn't say, I feel God's power mightily working within me. It says, His power is mightily working within me. 
whether I feel it or not. So I, in my thoughts, you know, writing down thoughts and stuff, and I've got all kinds of papers and thoughts and stuff, and um, I, I ask myself the question, is there no power mightily working within? And I realize later it's a bad question because there is power mightily working within every Christian. But I may not be experiencing it, and there are a few reasons why I may not be living in the reality of his power, which is mightily working within me. One is I might not be saved. So this is just Greek. I mean, it just makes no sense to say that his power is mightily working within you. It doesn't. It makes no sense at all if you are not saved. If you are not in Christ, in Christ in you, then his life is not your life, and his power is not mightily working within you. So that's one reason why I may not be experiencing his power. And another is, is that I may not just simply be abiding in Christ. And so I'm cutting off his life. He's in me. That'll never change. But I'm not walking in that life. I'm not abiding in Christ, so I'm not experiencing his enabling power. Sometimes it's because I'm not doing what he wants me to do. And what I mean by that is that God has a specific calling for every one of us, in any given day, we can live in Christ, going about what Christ has given us to do, or we can live our lives and ask God to bless us, and we wonder why we live so frustrated all the time, right? And, 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 I, and, and so this is where husbands and wives can help each other, because we get frustrated. And so the wife can say to the husband, sweetheart, maybe you're frustrated because you're not knowing God's enabling God's power. Maybe you're not knowing God's enabling and power because you're not doing what God wants you to do. You're doing what you want to do. I thanks. I needed that. And we have to say sometimes husbands say that to our wives. And so I'm not going to experience God's enabling power that mildly works within us when I'm not about what he wants me to be about. I have to be in agreement with him. I have to be yielded to him. But there is, you know, basically, I have to understand that his, if Christ is in me, his power is mightily at work within me. I don't have to pray for that. It is at work. The question is just yielding to him, walking in step with him. In his labor, it is striving, yes, but according to his power not my own, which mightily works within me. And that gives significance and it gives rest and peace to the Christian life because it's not us just going out and living our lives for God, but we're living from Him. It makes life supernatural in that we can persevere when others are quitting because we are laboring and striving according to His power, which is within us. God keeps us, he sustains us because he's the keeper and he's the sustainer as we already saw in Colossians chapter 1. One person summarized these verses in this way. We serve Christ well by exalting him in every way. In our trials, by enduring them joyfully. In our service, by serving or ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit as stewards appointed by him, in the power of Christ, in other words. And we serve Christ well and exalt him in every way in our message. 
by proclaiming Christ and nothing more, who is God's revelation, God's mystery about the indwelling Christ and the hope of glory for every believer. No Christian wants to stay stuck. We want to see progress in our lives. We want to grow. We all all want to have a message to share with others that is life-changing and that will meet the need of every heart. And all of that we have in Jesus Christ. And our lives can be just as effective for Jesus as Paul's because we have everything Paul had. We've got Christ living in us. Effective ministry, lives changed all around us, and, and we ourselves being empowered by him, laboring and striving according to his power, which mightily works within us. This isn't just Jesus up in heaven. This is Jesus in us. And that's what makes life supernatural. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for these truths that you have revealed to us. Mysteries hidden in the Old Testament, but now made known to the saints. Clearly, God, this is good news. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. I pray, God, that we would rejoice in all that you've done for us, and that we would rejoice in all that Christ is, and that he would not just be our Savior from sin and the hope of heaven, but that he would be the hope of glory now, that he could truly be seen through us and in us, glorified, magnified in us, and that we in turn could walk and live a life that is worthy of him because he is living in us. Thank you for the complete work that you've secured in our behalf through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.